0: Another edition of Smith and Jones right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan, and wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google, or otherwise, make sure you subscribe, download, rate, and review Jonesy. It's our final show of 2022, so we have lots to dive into over the course of the next hour or so. Um, obviously, we can discuss most recently some news in Raptor Land the 52 point performance for Pascal Siakam at Madison Square Garden. But I also want to look back at the year that was the, the 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 last 12 months because it has been some highs and lows for the Raptors. We've referenced this a few times in reference to this season and the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs and the inconsistencies of the Raptors. This 2022 year kind of started the same way for the Raptors. I'm talking the calendar year. The Raptors were more than halfway through last season sitting at, 23-23 and 23 after 46 games before going 25-11 and 11 to close out the year to get into the postseason. Optimism going into the playoffs, but they run into the Philadelphia 76ers. They have some issues with injuries with Fred Van Vliet and even more so with Scotty Barnes. And ultimately the Raptors bow out. An offseason of trying to put things back together, keep a core together, add a few pieces. Optimism going into the season injuries kind of derailing things it really has been a bit of a roller coaster for the Raptors in this calendar year
1: yeah it has Eric uh, you know I think of the calendar year and think of the fact that at one point as you said um, the way the roller coaster was they were playing in front of empty arenas remember last February we uh, you know we had some of those games where uh, half capacity and some were only family and friends, and it was it was it was quite the ride. Um, and I give this team a lot of credit for playing through that and fighting through that because there were very unique circumstances. At times, they were the only team in the NBA that were subjected to those um, trials, travails, and, and and conditions. So, I give the team a lot of credit. Um, it just. You know they always say that you you build your culture when you're winning, and it's tested in in tough moments, whether it be losing or, you know, the Raptors last year uh, still dealing with protocols from COVID and Canadian uh, expectations from the health department that were different than the U.S. and they fought through it, and they finished with 48 wins, and you know one of the one of the uh, coveted seeds that would get you a seven game series where you didn't have to play your way in. So uh, let's tip our hat to the team and the organization for uh, a, a real good year, particularly at the uh, end of, <laughs> at the start of last year. And looks like they're going through it kind of again at the end of this year.
0: You know, I think for me as well, I don't know if you'd agree. If, if one person stands out more than any for me in 2022, it's Scotty Barnes. And that's no disrespect intended to Pascal Siakam, who, had an all-NBA season at the end of last year, you know, the second half of the season, especially when he came on strong and he was named to that all-NBA team, uh, you know, into the springtime, summertime of 2022. Obviously, Fred Van Vliet as an all-star back in February as well. But when we think about Scottie Barnes going into the off season, whether it be Evan Mobley, Uh, whether it be Suggs, whether it be any number of players that were kind of in the conversation, Mobley being right at the top of the list. Scotty Barnes ultimately winning the hardware. Then into the summertime, he was the subject of a lot of rumors. And again, who knows if any of it was even close to being true, but he was the subject of a lot of rumors as there was chatter about Kevin Durant or others around the league. And if the Raptors were involved, it's a blockbuster deal. would have to involve the guy that's supposed to be the future in Scotty Barnes. And then this season starts, and his numbers for the most part, over the first 30-plus games, have been pretty much in line with his numbers from last year. But his impact hasn't necessarily been the same. Not every night. Some nights it absolutely has, but it hasn't necessarily. And I think that's because a large part of the fan base, and probably the organization as well, has set the bar higher based on the rookie of the year, based on the expectations of what we thought the future will be and hopefully can be for this guy. And... Because of that, he's no longer allowed to be sort of good or average. He needs to be great every night. At least that's the mentality. And you kind of have to step back sometimes perhaps and go, hold on a second. He's only 30 games into his second season. Dude's still 20 years old. There's going to be growing pains. There's going to be some some lumps in the old adage of you know creep, crawl, walk, run. It might take a little bit of time, even though you were teased and tantalized last year. But how much of that is also... you don't want to make excuses for him. You want to see this guy develop and blossom into that superstar. So to me, he's the guy that stands out in 22 more than anybody.
1: Yeah, Eric, and look, let's face it. Um, the expectations are something that uh, really need to be managed. And, and you know, you pointed out the numbers and how similar the numbers were. Well, <laughs> the Raptors did well last year, and everybody's waiting for you know, a guy like Scotty to, as as you say, take a step and take a step forward. And quite frankly, he should. And the expectation should be there to continue to get better. But, you know, we always talk about this. The rest of the league has cable too. <laughs> they know, they watch. And I'm not saying that it has to be tempered, but I think there has to be a degree of patience with it. And for Scotty, not just for the fans, but for Scotty too, He's got to continue to work and and put in the work and and work the way he did last year. But understand that, you know, growth isn't linear. And we talk about this all the time. And if you're the Raptors, understand that too. keep pushing him, keep working with him. But there are times where it could bump along. It could plateau before it takes off. But let's face it, if this team is going to make noise or surprise people kind of the way they did last year, uh, in the regular season by getting where they got to in the playoffs. He has to, he has to be a big part of that. He's your, you know, he's also a guy that they're probably looking at as a cornerstone for the future. So, um, you know, it's time, it's time, but again, you gotta be patient, uh, and his time will come, but uh, you gotta be patient with him, and he's got to continue to work and, and, and put the work in and, you know, hopefully it pays off later on down the line.
0: All right, so Jonesy, everything we've discussed then, let's, let's kind of look at it from 30,000 feet then. And again, I don't know, there's going to be some in the fan base that agree with me, some that are uh, whatever, you're, you know, you're too close to it, or whatever it might be. I look at it and go, you've got a core of, with no disrespect to any of the names I don't mention here, you've got a core of Scotty Barnes, Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, and Pascal Siakam. Now, granted... There's a decision coming, a very big decision at the end of the season regarding Fred Van Bleet and a contract and whatnot. But you've got again Barnes, Fred, OG, and Siakam, beyond whatever else you have as well. Is that not a pretty solid core and you're suddenly just gonna give up on it? Like I don't know. I don't I don't see it. No,
1: I I wouldn't. I, I look, you also have to give the time like you might have a nice core. But you also have to give it time to develop. Um, and, and I know I can hear the howls now. What do you mean? They've all been here before. They all had their hands on the championship trophy. Yeah, they did. But they were in different roles then. They were in, they were in different uh, spots in their career. Their, the expectations on them were different. So.
0: And, Jonesy, can I cut in for a second? But they yeah. really didn't have that. They really didn't have that. There are four guys on this team, and two of them didn't play. Boucher and OG did not play. There's only two that had their hands on the championship, Fred and Pascal. That's it.
1: Yeah, no, and, and, and to my point, people, and, and that's where I was going with, the roles are different. Uh, the expectations are different. If they're the core, people around them are different. Yeah, they might have been here when there was winning, but they weren't the the integral parts to it. They weren't in the middle of it. They, weren't, they didn't have the expectations. So the short answer to your question is, no, I'm not giving up. On that, I'm 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 not, and you know sometimes the long game and the patience is 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 a virtue that you need to hold on to, and see how it plays out, and not just go for the quick fix all the time. Once you really have an idea of what you have, then maybe you make a move to try and shore it up, or you know get another piece in to add to it. But you better know what that other piece is, too, and you better know exactly what you're giving up.
0: I'll tell you what, it looked pretty good. Looked pretty good at Madison Square Garden with one of those core pieces when Pascal Siakam goes out and puts up 52 points on the Knicks. And, Jonesy, just before we hear from the radio voice of the New York Knicks, Ed Cohen, man, oh, man, to do it on the biggest stage against a team that was rolling i mean it, it's arguably the biggest stage in the nba it's arguably one of the biggest stages in pro sports but to go into msg in manhattan and put up 52 in a and and i don't use the term lightly a historic performance i mean that's one that's right up there among the best of the best in history in that building man oh man pascal looked every bit the part of a core guy and a, and a franchise guy and a guy that you certainly want to you know have pieces built around it's a matter of now trying to build upon that more but heck the last two games yeah 90 points <laughs> like it's Eric, on a tear. tossing
1: this tossing this around and we we talked about it uh in the body of at the end of the broadcast there have been like four 50 point games in the regular season for toronto fred's got 54 pascal 52 terrence ross had a 51 Demar had a 52 i think mm-hmm and then Vince Carter, so five. So there have been five of them. That one by Pascal, with the circumstances, six in a row uh, uh, in the losing column, Madison Square Garden, uh, the, the 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 close nature of the game. In the in the in the annals of fifty point games in Raptors history, that's got to be close to the top. I mean. You know, T-Ross and and DeMar, yeah, they won. DeMar was in a close one too, but those were both at home. I mean, to me, Vince is still the ultimate and he gets a little bit of a, he's like one and maybe Pascal's is one A because Vince was at a time when the the franchise was still fledgling, still uh, kind of getting its feet. And NBC, based on what Vince did, started to, uh, you know, see him as a superstar and, and put him on national TV in the US, and he responds with a, a 50 point game for, for NBC and national TV. But uh, Pascal's 52 pointer at Madison Square Garden, pretty good. There's only, I think, five performances, Pascal being the fifth. And I, th- I think I read this somewhere where 50 points, five rebounds, five assists. And Bernard in the new garden, not the old one, Bernard King, LeBron twice, Steph, and Pascal. Like I said, always say, it's not a class by himself, but that's attendance right there. It doesn't take too long to do it.
0: Hey, and Bernard King was in the building for that game as well. Pascal did it in front of Bernard King. Um, let's bring into the conversation for more on the Knicks, even though they're a long win streak, the eight gamers in the rearview mirror now, the radio play-by-play voice of the Knicks, Ed Cohen. Ed, I'm going to ask maybe the shortest question I've ever asked, ever. What is going on with the Knicks? Well,
2: Eric, I'll ask you this. Did you ever see the movie in the 90s with Michael Douglas called Falling Down? Yes. You know that scene where the traffic stopped and Robert Duvall looks at the license plate and it says defense and he screams, <laughs> defense! There's your answer. <laughs> the hey, well, numbers during this win streak have been unbelievable.
0: Can, can you rip a page out and hand it over to the Raptors then or what?
2: <laughs> I'll tell you. These are the tough games because just looking at what you guys have been through the last six and how many close games you've endured, um, this is still a Nick Nurse coach team. And this is a team that has had success against the Knicks. The Raptors have always been tough when relatively healthy. Uh, But I'll say this, what the Knicks have done, it's been so much fun to watch just the last eight games. And it was pretty simple. The Knicks shortened the rotation. They added a couple of guys, notably Quinn Grimes and Deuce McBride, who really brought so much on the defensive end. And what was a huge issue December 3rd, Dallas was the last loss to the Knicks. They came to the Garden and were 24 of 61 from three-point range. They took 61 threes and made 24 of them. And the Knicks were giving up the most attempts and the most made threes in the NBA up until that point. Last eight games, if you look at the overall numbers during this streak in the NBA, Knicks have given up the fewest threes made, and that's been a huge shift during this winning streak.
1: And I, I've watched, I, and I was, I was deeply into that Dallas game that you talked about on the Saturday afternoon. Listened to some of you on the radio, and then, and then you know, caught a bit on TV. And Tibbs must be licking his chops now because he is all about the defense, and. Did he get to the point without saying it that, all right, if you're not going to defend, you're not going to play? Because, as you said, the rotations changed. And, you know, I watched the Golden State game last night. Yeah, sure, they were missing people. But, man, they're sitting in their chair, and they are getting after it.
2: Paul, you're 100% right. And in terms of did Tom Thibodeau come out and say that publicly? No. But if you look at the moves that have been made, Obviously, Grimes, he entered the starting lineup a couple of games earlier on the Knicks' West Coast trip. He just adds so much. Now, the interesting part is we'll see if he plays tonight. He's a game-time decision as of you know about an hour before tip. But McBride's added a lot, and he's not a scorer, and he is undersized. But you know you're getting 17 or 18 really good defensive minutes off the bench every night. And the thing about the Knicks the last few years is, they defend the paint really well, and there's that element of rim protection with Mitchell Robinson. You know, the past year, Nerlens Noel, and now you have Hardenstein and Jericho Sims both at the moment coming off the bench together. But it was how do you get from the paint and still close out and force teams off the line? And that's what guys like Grimes and McBride, Emmanuel, quickly. I put them in the conversation too. Those aggressive young guards who, even if they're not. Getting steals and blocking shots and riding a defender or an opposing player for entire possession, they're getting to the outside and making it difficult. And that's been the biggest part of what they've done.
1: It it shouldn't surprise you, Ed, that uh, you know I look in Milwaukee at a Javon Carter and I I look at McBride as a as a huggy guy. That that doesn't surprise you, does it?
2: No, it's uh, no doubt. Press Virginia, you know they come from (laughs) that great system in Morgantown and. Obviously, I actually interviewed Deuce McBride last week when we were in Charlotte, maybe two weeks ago. And you say, hey, what's it like going from Bob Huggins to Tom Thibodeau? And I'm sure there are differences and variances in terms of what each team does. But when you're used to that system down there, it makes it a lot easier when you get to the NBA. You have a coach who's demanding on the defensive end. And you can clearly see that Tom Thibodeau loves these young guys, especially guys like Deuce McBride. It's made a huge difference.
0: Speaking with Ed Cohen, Ed, um, obviously we're we're a little biased, I suppose, or at least not maybe not even biased. Well, we are biased, I suppose, to the Canadians to some degree, but we're also influenced by the Canadians, so we have to at least ask you about RJ Barrett I mean the season numbers overall are solid just under 20 points per game but during the last six games as well we're talking about almost 25 per game I'm looking at the numbers statistically speaking as well the three yeah could use a little bit of work but overall the field goal percentage solid he's got the rebound numbers up the assist totals are still decent as well around three a game what's been you know the the best or the biggest thing you've seen from his game this year as he continues to evolve as a pro in his fourth year
2: yeah Eric, I think The first thing, and, you know, we catch ourselves as announcers because you feel like you're saying the same thing at the same time of every season. And the refrain the last couple of years in October, November is R.J. Barrett, admittedly, he's a slow starter. And then you look at the numbers and in his four years, he traditionally gets off to really slow starts for whatever reason. It might be the decision making, the shot selection. Three's not going down. It trickles to the other parts of his game. But right now, he's starting to really build on his strengths. He's getting to the foul line at a good rate. He's been better at the line this year. And that's important because, as you guys know, I mean, he can get to the rim when he wants to go left, now more so when he wants to go right. Like his free throw percentage is critical to the success of this team because he can get there so frequently. Uh, but he's working from the inside out. And I think that's taking less pressure. That's uh, taking more pressure off of him uh, if his outside shot isn't working. So I think the consistency, the shot selection, the decision-making, that's been the biggest part for him.
1: 18-19-21, he's gone October, November, December, and the field goal percentage, Ed, to your point, has gone 40-41-44. Um, the other guy that I'm looking at offensively, and somehow it's been simplified for him, I, I, I see him as a guy that at times he was – I don't know if selfish is the right word, but Julius Randle wanted to make plays for himself and for the team. And sometimes at the detriment of holding the ball, it sure looks like after watching the Knicks, especially during this win streak, Julius is a lot more in tune with the offense and the ball movement. And he seems to be in a much better flow.
3: You know,
2: Paul, if you go back to two years ago, the all NBA season, he's most improved. He was an all-star like, it was such an amazing NBA story. It was an incredible New York story. Like, he had a rough first year here. And I think you look at the selection of Obi Toppin, a lot of that was, hey, uh, you need some depth at that position depending on what happens with Julius Randle. And he turns around and has this incredible year. He carries the team to the playoffs or so the fourth seed. You know, it didn't work out against Atlanta, but he had an amazing run. Last year, it's a complete 180. He struggled. His numbers were way down. He had issues with the refs, the fans, uh, games at the Garden. It was just—it was a hard year. And I think this season he's—he's he's kind of reverted back to the guy he was two years ago in a great way. A uh, big part of that too is Jalen Brunson and having that point guard who you can trust with the ball in his hands, who's been doing amazing things. I mean, really, he's had a terrific 31-game start uh, with the Knicks. You know, to begin this four-year contract but I think that's taken a lot of pressure off of Randall. And what you're seeing now is he knows he's going to get doubled. He knows that this team needs him to be that guy and that leading scorer, but he's not forcing it nearly as much. Decisions have been way better. And what's been a huge plus lately is the Knicks struggled so much the first 20 games on the defensive glass, like bottom four, bottom five in the NBA, that whole run uh, for the first month plus. During the win streak, they've been number one in defensive rebound percentage. And Randall, over these last eight games, has 10 defensive rebounds per night. So he's not just scoring. It's not just the passing and making good choices. Uh, He's been aggressive going to the glass. And it's the guy we kind of felt he was two years ago. Impacting the game, scoring, uh, but doing it within the flow of what the Knicks are doing.
0: Hey, Ed, last one for you, maybe. Um, when we think about veterans on any team, we always talk about teams needing that that sort of veteran voice in the locker room, let alone on the floor. Randall clearly could be that guy. Uh, you still have an Evan Fournier who's played 10, 11 years in the league as well. Um, but after that, it's pretty much, you know, everybody five years or less. There's the one dude that stands out for me, though. <laughs> 14 years in, in Derrick Rose. What's his role with this team now? Because I know he hasn't played a whole lot this month, hasn't played a whole lot this season chatter about whether he's a trade candidate potentially or whatever but is he still a voice and a guy that's that's got the right attitude coming to this team and 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 would he be happy staying there like just give me a sense of where things stand with him you know both on and off the floor
2: I I think the answer to that is emphatic yes across the board and the evidence Eric really came to fruition last week when we were in Chicago obviously it's it's tough you're 34 you're an MVP you've had a resurgence, if you will, since coming over to New York. I mean, two years ago, Knicks don't make the playoffs without Derrick Rose leading the bench group. He right. was so good. And even last year, before he went down for the season in December, he was playing 23-24 minutes. It was really a split, at least ideally, between him and Kemble Walker. Come out this year and he's playing 13-14 minutes a night. You know, Maybe a little more some nights, but not the same workload. And he is 34. And given the pace with which the Knicks play with that second unit, it's hard to play those minutes and play at that pace every night at his age. Uh, but he's taken this so well. He had a quote a couple of weeks ago where he said, I like winning. We're winning. I don't want to go anywhere else. And he even doubled down and said, how could I hate on a guy like McBride? Look what the guy's doing. So he subscribes to what they're doing. And to add to that, we're in Chicago last week. Tom Thibodeau is very respectful of the veteran guys like Evan Fournier, Cam Reddish, who aren't in the rotation, and he's not just going to throw them in for two minutes in garbage time. That's just not what you do in the league. And we're in the United Center. The crowd's cheering for Derrick Rose, and Tibbs asks him. He wants to go in, and for the final three-plus minutes, for him to have that moment back in his home city and the place where he achieved so much success in those early years of his career. And then to make the first shot he took and and nail a three, the loudest the building was all night. It was a really cool moment, and I think it solidified, you know, your original point that, yeah, it's a young team, but to have veterans like that who are on board, it, it makes such a big difference when you're
0: trying to build this thing. Ed, we appreciate the time, man. Thanks for this. Thanks, Ed. Guys, always a pleasure. That was the radio play-by-play voice of the New York Knicks, Ed Cohen. When we come back, we're going to hear from Fox Sports 1 analyst, host of On the Ball with Rick Bucher, the aforementioned Rick Bucher, and also our friend, former Toronto Raptor, and, of course, Sportsnet analyst Alvin Williams, all set to come on Smith & Jones. Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you again. Make sure you are subscribed to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Google, Spotify, or otherwise, download, subscribe, rate, and review. As we bring into the conversation right now, he's been covering the NBA a long time. You know the name, you know the face, you know the voice from Fox Sports 1, Rick Buker. Rick, we were discussing earlier in the show the sort of rumor mill that existed, and who knows how much was fact, fiction, speculation, or otherwise, back in the summertime. Yep. Whether it was connected to Toronto or any number of teams in the league, um, as it relates to Kevin Durant and, and, and the, the, the alleged trade demand, et cetera, and all that. As we get yep. closer now to the trade deadline and certainly the flip of the calendar, and now that we've got uh, you know, contracts that got locked in back on December 15th and whatnot, we've passed that sort of date in the NBA calendar. Do you anticipate things starting to pick up a little bit more, or do you sense that more teams are kind of still taking that wait-and-see approach as we approach the midway point of the season?
4: They're very much taking the wait and see approach because nobody has really pulled away from the pack. And uh, I'm actually working on an end of the year column. And one of the things that uh, I've asked uh, various people around the league, sc- scouts and GMs and executives and coaches is to describe this year, uh, you know, what, what has stood out for them about this year so far and, Uh, the uh, one of the one of the popular answers is that it's as deep and competitive as I've seen it. There's just I was anticipated going into the year that there could be as many as, you know, nine, 10 teams that you could make a case for uh, contending for the title. And it's 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 borne out that way. And it's not so much that because we've got all these incredibly strong, dominant teams as much as We've got all these talented teams that all have a flaw in one way or the other. And so as of right now, I would not expect to see any big names, Kevin Durant, Bradley Beal. I'm not even sure Russell Westbrook necessarily gets, gets moved. I think it's going to be the smaller pieces, a Jordan Clarkson or a Jared Vanderbilt. Jay Crowder obviously is out there. Uh, maybe the biggest name being John Collins from the Atlanta Hawks. Like, I, those are the type of players that I see. And and they could be difference makers. You know, who who ends up grabbing that last piece uh, could ultimately – that could be an influence in terms of who ends up out on top. But I just – as of right now, I I've been told, you know, don't – and we're not going to see anything happen until – January at the earliest and not to expect anything uh, momentous happening.
1: Rick, how much do you attribute that to the new playoff structure? I mean, it's 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 done a couple things. The play-in tournament has has, you know, some of the the spin-offs and 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 uh, offshoots have been beneficial. It's going to prevent some of the tanking because if you're yep. in 11 or 12 and you think, man, if I can get to that line, get to 10, then one game, you know, catch lightning in a bottle, catch fire. You never know. Everybody's got that hope. And then the other part of it is a team that might be 10 or 11. They might think, well, why are we selling people? Why are we selling off and trading when like we're close to being a, quote, postseason team? How much do you think the playoff structure has influenced some of the patience around the moves, uh, you know, over the course of the season.
4: I think there's some of that. It, that That's one factor. Another factor is the way that they've balanced out the draft lottery uh, percentages so that having the worst record doesn't really, I mean, if you have one of the, the worst three records, you're uh, you have the same odds of having the number one pick. And, uh, and then looking at the percentages going down the line, and how many times does the team with the worst record uh, end up with the number one pick? And what happens to those teams who do tank? How easily have they gotten back out of the tanking mode? And I'm just you look at the standings as they are right now. You know that the Detroit Pistons are. Don't want to be at the bottom of the league anymore. The the Houston Rockets don't want to be at the bottom of the league anymore. Um, the, they'd like to move up, and they're simply finding it difficult. Once you tear it down and go in that direction, how do you how do you get back up? And so, I think it's a combination of how they've adjusted the draft lottery, teams getting smarter and realizing. You know this whole tanking idea of of just getting bad. Well, the problem is how do you the 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 climb up uh, is 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 uh, steeper than we thought, and we have these teams sort of in the middle that didn't do the complete, you know, uh, uh, the complete tank job. They didn't they didn't tear it down to the studs like the Indiana Pacers, um, as an example, or maybe even the Utah Jazz, uh, who are in that gray area that they're looking at it as, um, you know, we we can take a step back. We won't, like, sell the farm to be one of the best teams, but let's not be one of the worst teams. And so as a result of that, that play-in tournament now makes, uh, you know, there are more teams that are vying for those play-in tournament spots. And who knows? you got a team that you're – not spend, you know you're not going over the cap on and then you somehow you get into the playoffs and or you have the play-in game that gets your team your your, your fan base excited and who knows you get in the first round you make you're going to make a couple million off of that uh i just I, you get I think some experience rick
1: you get some experience for your for, you get some experience Absolutely. for some of your players you know,
4: you know what? If that's a, that may be the greatest point and thing and one that I think is really overlooked, which is if you have young players, um, they can be good in the regular season. But if you're if you're thinking about maxing them out or giving them some big long-term contract, you want to know what they are in the playoffs because the playoffs are a different animal, and it's not that you're necessarily going to win the series, but you get a really good sense of whether your guy is capable of competing in the playoffs. And if he is, then you invest in him. If he isn't, then you're probably still looking around and not necessarily extending that guy or giving him a a contract that's going to be difficult to move.
0: Hey, Rick, correct me if I'm wrong on this. And, uh, Jonesy, I don't know if you would agree with this as well, too. It sure seems like, especially in today's NBA it's, I mean, listen, I hate the word tank anyways. I, I I don't believe in it. I can't imagine if I was ever handed the keys to an organization that I'd be wanting to go out and lose, no matter how tantalizing the number one pick might be. And it is a very tantalizing one coming up next summer. Um, it's very hard to tank, to tear down mid-season. Like, that's almost a decision you have to make ahead of the season going into the year. We're going with X crew, X core that's, inexperienced, or not very talented. Because when you go out there and suddenly your season doesn't turn the way you want, it's pretty damn hard to unload players to make trades, to find dance partners for trades, and to do this full-on tank mode. It's extremely difficult midstream when you've already got locked-in contracts and maybe contracts that aren't movable because of certain numbers and whatnot. Is it not?
4: Well, it it is if if, if you loaded up and you were thinking that you were competing for a spot, and then suddenly you don't find yourself competing for a spot and you know right now i'm keeping a close look on the minnesota timberwolves because they they went out and they kind of loaded up you know they went they went for bear in terms of uh acquiring uh rudy gobert and they're not making the jump that everybody expected so now it's a matter of okay are we gonna like which direction are we gonna go it's a little bit easier you know if you're the the utah jazz for example who and that's the other part that I think is surprising about this season. Like we had teams that before the season, we were just anticipating moving Donovan Mitchell and moving Rudy Gobert and uh, that the Utah Jazz were in the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes. Oklahoma City Thunder, same thing. And those teams have not – now, they've still got plenty of time to sink to the bottom of the standings, but those teams have been far, far more competitive than anybody anticipated utahs I, I think that both Utah and Oklahoma city are in a great place. Cause you can satisfy your fan base and, and your, some of your star players by like allowing them to compete <laughs> for half the season. And then you get around, you know, right before the trade deadline and then you move with Jordan Clarkson and you move with Jared Vanderbilt. And, uh, and, and now, you know, you haven't tanked the entire year. It's hard keep your fan base happy just by coming out from the very beginning and saying, we don't care about, about winning games. Um, So I think there's a way to do it that, um, that you can, you can work against your, your ability to win, but not doing it in an obscene way where everybody just goes, why should I watch this team? They're not trying to win. And that you send that message to your locker room. You have to be very careful in how you do it, but I think there's a way to do it. Um, but, but you know, if you're the team that, like, uh, I mean, Chicago Bulls. Chicago Bulls, Minnesota Timberwolves, those are the first two teams that come to mind that, uh, you know, built teams thinking they were going to go somewhere, and now they're not. And, and now you're, you're kind of dealing with trying to trade damaged goods if indeed you go that direction.
1: So, Rick, uh, I guess the next question is there are teams that, did have expectations. Uh, they yep. can't do the. They can't do the Sam Presti like pull the plug on everybody after All Star break. That's a running joke, with with the right. group that I that I run with. Uh, Sam's great now, but he wants Wembenyama, and at some point, uh, he'll offer Shea Gil- Gilgis Alexander for like nine draft picks, and and they'll shut everybody else down. But um, the the team that comes to mind is the Lakers. They've got a couple of picks, yep. uh, that are yep. coveted. Um, they are uh, not by their own, uh, you know, demise, but by their own accord. But by the way of the schedule and injuries, they are in the tank. But when you deal with LeBron, everything is short term. It's a win now, short term proposition. Like if you're Rob Palenka, do you do you trade those picks knowing that, hey, I might not be here when those picks are being made if I don't win now, or do you try to hang on to? Hang on to what you have, and and you know, uh, try to cobble it together.
4: Well, I think the tell that Jeannie Boss is in accord with with Rob and the Rambuses, who are sort of the shadow government in in Lakerland, are all in accord. Is that they extended Palinka's contract, uh, knowing that um, you know what we're going to go through some rough times because. We're not going to trade these picks. I I just, I, I think that's the smart way to go. I know you got to deal with clutch agency and LeBron, but the fact of the matter is they're not good enough, and those picks aren't uh, aren't valuable enough for them to make a difference and suddenly make them title contenders. Um, And you know, quietly, one of the other teams is the Warriors are also a team that has loaded up signed Jordan Poole to a big contract, re-signed Andrew Wiggins. And they are a very expensive team that right now has a losing record. And without Steph Curry going bananas this year, I think they'd be even in worse uh in, in worse position. So it we should throw those in with the Minnesotas and the and the Chicago's in terms of teams that have very expensive rosters that may not be able to live up to it. And now you get, you know, the Warriors in particular are stuck in this position of, do we like, do we give up on Wiseman and Kaminga and Moody and try to go out and get a vet that can turn the tide because our bench just isn't good enough for us to contend for a title? Or do we acknowledge that, you know what, our run is over and, I think that the Lakers are looking at it that way. Like, they don't—they're not going to announce it because those tickets are expensive, and people in LA, L.A. have a lot of other entertainment options. But the sense that I get is they're looking at it like we're going to make the best of what we can while LeBron chases the all-time scoring record. But we're not—we're not conceding any more assets at this point because. We're, it's, it's just a bridge too far. We can't make a deal that is going to make a that's going to make a difference. I mean, everybody's like all hot and bothered, especially in LA, about getting Miles Turner and Buddy Heald. I'm like, have you guys watched? Actually, watched the Pacers with Miles Turner and Buddy Hield. Their numbers might like look good. Buddy Hield plays zero defense, and if he's not hitting threes, he's a negative, not a positive. And Miles Turner either hurt or constantly in foul trouble. <laughs> it's like, eh, those guys aren't going to be the solution to your problems, especially with Anthony Davis not being able to stay healthy. So it's a tough pill to swallow in LA, but it's just this is the price you pay for going to the wall to get Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook, which is what LeBron wanted. And. You got a championship out of it in the bubble. Like, that's – this is the price you pay after the fact. Look at every other team that LeBron has been with. Like, their resources are spent, and it takes them a minute to recover as a result.
0: Rick? Let me jump back to the east and get your sense of what's happening with the Raptors right now because, you know, Jonesy not calling the games. Maybe we're, maybe we're too close at times. So the fan base that's listening to you right now is saying, okay, Rick Bucher is going to give us the real goods then. What's your <laughs> sense of this team right now? Because we look at it and go, all right, so Van Vliet was an all-star last year and Siakam was all-NBA and Freddie went into this year talking about wanting to be an all-defensive player. OG Ananobi looks every bit the part of that guy. Might even be Defensive Player yeah. of the Year candidate. Scotty Barnes, reigning Rook of the Year. He's kind of struggled a little bit, but that's a pretty good core overall. They have been ravaged by injuries, but they're now just yeah. coming out of a six-game losing streak. They're below 500, and people, at least in Raptor Land, are thinking, what the hell? Should we be tanking? This core is not good enough. We, we're, What direction are we going? What's your sense of... You know Your take specifically of the team, but then also any chatter you're hearing about what the Raptors may be leaning towards doing.
4: I haven't heard anything about the Raptors making a change largely because of what you said. Like Injuries have really undermined what this team is capable of. I was on the Raptors bandwagon hard coming into the season because uh, I had a chance to see them out at UCLA. They had the entire, not, not just the players, were all out there. Uh, together throughout the summer playing in the in the nba run uh at the on on the ucla campus but they had like coaches personnel i mean it was like a it was like a training camp summer long training camp for the raptors as they tried to overcome uh all the setbacks they had with uh, some of the the, uh the covid restrictions and pascal missing as much time as he did and and so i was uh i was very gung-ho about what they were going to do this season and i've been I've been very disappointed in what their record is and how it has gone so far. Uh, I think maybe one of the things, and I, I, you know, short answer is I do think that they're going to come out of it. Um, I think they're they're a very good team, but they need all hands on deck. And the one element, you know, there's a couple elements that that have that have happened, but the one element that that maybe I didn't give enough um, recognition to is. They don't have a true superstar. So if you're compromised in terms of your depth and your versatility, that's, they don't have that guy who, they don't have like a staff who can kind of carry you through those days, de- a KD, um, who, can, who can carry you when you're missing some key pieces. They kind of need, you know, not having Pascal. Um, I love the way he came into the season. I thought, you know what, he's back to what we saw a couple of years ago. Um, you, you lose him, that's a big loss for them, especially being uh, undersized as they are. Uh, Fred has struggled, uh, and uh, and Scotty Barnes, dude, has to develop a three. I mean, I I I love his game. I wouldn't trade him. I'd be happy to build around him. I think he's got the great attitude, but like how many times do I have to watch the ball swung out to him at the three-point line and he squares up and looks at the rim and just goes, "Uh I don't think I can make this. And, and then has to do something else like that. The the three-point shot is just too important to the game today to have a player of his magnitude, not be able to shoot that, not willing to shoot it consistently. And so um, I just think there are some elements. I, I, I think they're they're a I don't want to say fragile, but they're a delicately built team where they need everybody uh available in order to play their best. Now, I do think that uh the one thing that they have going for them that for example the the Bulls do not the Bulls appear appear to have some chemistry issues. I don't get any sense of that from the Toronto Raptors. I think I think that they are together in this, and that they were fi- they will figure a way out of it. So I may be talking in, in defending my my pick for them as being a team that was capable of winning fifty games coming into the season, but uh, but I'm not going to give up on them yet because uh, I still believe in what they did during the off season and what they have. Uh, but they, you know, being healthy is is a vital part to their success.
1: I was going to ask Rick. So it sounds like you're willing to play the long game with the Raptors. I mean, I, I know that. Um, uh, I know that the fan base has experienced a little bit of frustration, but they kind of yeah. puttered along last year until they took off. Do you see yeah. that? Do you see that same thing happening if they kind of play the long game and stay patient and not just try to shake things up for the quick fix?
4: Yeah, I mean, especially right now, because if you look at if you look at the East, um, we can make a case that okay, so Milwaukee is looking solid, Boston looking solid, yeah, Cleveland. I still I think that they're a better regular season team than they are a playoff team, but everybody else, um, I see the same vulnerability. So I just don't. Um, I I don't look at the the circumstances of the league right now and think, you know, Toronto has to give up what multiple pieces in order to get that superstar player, even if they're, and this is the other problem. What superstar player out there is available? Kevin Durant was the only one that we were really talking about. Bradley Beal re-upped in in D.C. I don't know that I would go and get him and build around him. Uh, Sometimes you just have to have that that patience and say, we've got a competitive team. And when the opportunity presents itself, then we can go jump on it. But just to make a move for move's sake, um, you know, just to change it up just because people are anxious that, Hey, we've seen this movie before. I think that's the worst reason to make a move. And again, especially because like the Raptors, these guys, don't have a problem sharing the load. Fred, Pascal, OG, like you don't have anybody who's looking around going, hey, I'm not getting enough shots. I'm not getting enough touches. Um, And there's a great value when you have guys that want to play and win together. And sometimes the struggle is the motivation when you finally get it going and you have everybody on board, I can tell you firsthand. I mean, that was not to say that they're going to become the next Warriors, but that was the heart of the Warriors. Like Klay Thompson, Dray Draymond Green, Steph Curry, they're in my backyard. Like their motivation was. We went through years where we were not good. We were struggling to make the playoffs, and then we made the playoffs and we grew up a little bit, but. We still, they, you know, as they were making their rise, lost in the first round of the Clippers and then came back and, and, and made their runs. Like sometimes keeping a group together and allowing them to suffer uh, together is the motivation that ends up pushing them uh, beyond what uh, maybe they previously were capable of.
0: Hey, Rick, we appreciate the time and the insight. Thanks for joining us. All the best for the holiday season and we'll look forward to speaking with you again in the new year. You got it. Happy holidays. That was Fox Sports 1, FS1 analyst, host of On the Ball with Rick Buker, Rick Buker. As we uh, shift attention now and bring into the conversation our friend, our colleague from Sportsnet and, of course, one of the all-time greats in Raptor history, fan favorite, Alvin Williams. Al, we appreciate the time as always.
3: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Hey, Al, I, I, I kind of want to go off the beaten path a little bit with you to start this. And, and I know we often do this, and I, and I kind of like these more sort of big-picture life philosophical discussions from time to time. The Raptors finally snap a skid. Um, many in Raptorland, some weren't, but many were freaking out and sky is falling and change this, trade that, get rid of this, tank, whatever it might be. Um, this team doesn't trust each other. They, they, they don't like their coach. Nick Nurse has got to be fired. This guy's got to be dealt away. Like, all of the stuff that's going on. How hard or easy is it as a player to tune that stuff out and to just focus on the job, to not allow that stuff to creep into the locker room, or to even sometimes maybe either A, listen to it, or B, laugh at it? Like, what's the mindset of the athlete and and, and how things go uh, kind of between the painted lines and in the locker room over the course of what could be either a very high, low, or tumultuous season?
3: I think it depends on the individual, of course, the team makeup, but the athletes, no matter if they're professional or whatever, they're, they're human, so... If you are the athlete that has your ear to all of it, you know, the publications and the sayings, whoever is doing whatever the case may be, what the media is, wherever, the fanfare, it's, it's, something, it's hard to block out, especially when you're losing, right? You're losing. Everything sinks in. You know, people point fingers and, you know, people make excuses and everything can be a part of the reason why you're losing. But if you are a team that allows the outside noise to affect your performance, when there are real there's some real issues that people really don't know about. Nine times out of ten, people don't know the real issues because they're not in that locker room. They can only speculate. So I think it all depends on the makeup of the team and the leadership of the team and how and how those losses are, are are had, right? How 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 are you losing? It could be in different ways, but I think it ultimately comes down on the individual and if they have the capability along with the leadership. To block all the noise out and continue to continue to push forward and, and go through with the process of trying to win.
1: Al, we talk about it. Teams often say, you know, like you look at the Raptors uh, and and recently, um, te- teams often can point to. I know you never take moral victories, but you you always have some positives, some things that are, you know, that you can hold on to as cornerstones. When you look at the Raptors recently, and let's face it, the record's very similar. And and we're going to go another 10, 15 games. And remember, after 46 last year, they were at 500, and they didn't take off till towards the end. There are some positives in there. How much, when there is losing, do you as a player, you're never okay with losing. It always upsets you. You said that's when everybody makes the noise. But as a player, how much are you looking at, okay, we got some things we can build on here. we got to do this more, and you start demanding of your teammates to make this thing better while also holding yourself accountable.
3: Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's some if, if you're at a better team and you're taking a couple of losses, it's about what can we clean up or what adjustments can we make or what can you just do better right I think I think it comes down to just acknowledging it, holding each other accountable, and then it's it's really once again. It's a fine line between the wins and losses in the NBA, because you have so many games. You have certain teams that you 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 don't you lose to that you're not supposed to lose to. So a lot of things just go on in in that in that course of taking losses, all right, or having a losing streak. But it's just best to um get 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 back get back in on momentum, get back in the game, because the worst thing about going on a losing streak you don't have practice time. You don't have practice time to, to, to fix things all the time. So you have to fix it on the fly. And you have to fix it in game scenarios. That's why it's important for the, the team to have the right makeup where the personnel can lead the charge when it's time to make a change or it's time to hold each other accountable and the other players respect those people. You know, the coaching staff is the coaching staff, but it's only but so much they can do at certain standpoints of, of the season. It has to come down to the personnel and the makeup of the guys in that locker room.
0: Al, how much does the calendar factor into things as well when things are going good or bad? And the reason I bring that up is, hey, man, it's the holiday season. It's a lot of distractions. And at the end of the day, you talked about it. These guys are people too. They have personal lives. And as much as you might say – Focus on the job, focus on the game. Hey, we're all, we all have jobs. We're all getting pulled to this event or that party or this whatever function it might be. We've got kids. We've got family members. We've got whatever. And then you add that extra layer of travel and being away and whatnot. Is it better to be on the road and away from the distractions? Is it better to have the comforts of home? Can you even focus on the holidays or whatever? Like I understand you have a job, but it'd be foolish or naive to think that you aren't influenced by the other stuff around you.
3: Yeah, you definitely can be influenced, and a calendar definitely plays a part. It plays a part with everything, holidays, scheduling, teams, and all all of those things, travel. But I think for the most part, the better teams, they handle all of those things the right way, and they handle it in a fashion where they're not going to be hurt by it. Now, you might have a better team, and they could be 21-7, and 7, and then during this holiday, they may lose two games. So now they're just 21-9. and 9. So it doesn't really hurt them as much because they are the better teams. But you have teams that, you know, that, that sometimes get impacted by by this time. You have you have a young team that could get distracted. But I don't think it really comes down to really affecting the better teams because the holidays and everything, that's just part of it. That's part of it. Like you play on Christmas or you play on the Thanksgiving days or you play on Easter, whatever it is. I think the better teams, they know how to respond to it. They know how to prepare for it. And once again, if their schedule if their record is at a certain a certain place during that holiday time, right it's not highlighted if they do lose a game or two out of three games during that time, so it definitely makes a difference, but like I said, the better teams they they overcome that and and it's not that big of a deal if they do have a drop or fall off a bit in the schedule
1: al i I got a couple for you here I'm not sure which direction to go because you you kind of touched on both the things uh, Exercising patience for the Raptors, how important is that? And then how much do the other teams influence your level of patience? Like, there are some people that have, some teams that have surprised at the quarter poll a third of the way through. Like, I don't think anybody expected Indiana to be where they are. Uh, I don't think anybody expected Chicago to be where they are. The Raptors have had injuries. There's all these factors, and and if you're in Toronto, are you know? Do you play the long game? I think you play the long game. But are you looking to make a little bit of a deal to to shore things up, or do you wait to see what you have, and then you're looking at other people around you because you are eyeing the standings and playoff positions and trying to maybe stay out of the play, and if you can, there's a lot there, Al. But but. You know, where would you go right now if you're, you know, if you had a, a, you know, a pipeline to Bobby Masai and Dan Tolzman and people like that?
3: No, I mean, I believe that this team has the pieces to correct anything that's going on. First and foremost, that they have the talent to win games and they have the talent to compete and they have the talent to be a formidable opponent in the Eastern Conference. But they also have the pieces that, If you choose to, I feel like you could make a move. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs and the numbers and what the projections are with with where the team wants to go in the next two, three, four years, or even this year. But you do have pieces that are very valuable, and you can include that with what you currently have, um, and you can make a push, or you can work with what you got, which I think, is is it enough to win a championship? Who knows? But it's definitely enough to compete. The issue with the Eastern Conference, I think a lot of these teams just got better. Like they got better, so every night it's going to be a battle. So if you fall, if you fall short, whether it's the injuries or you're not playing well, you're not just running into too many teams that's an easy or it's a walkover right now. So that's the biggest thing. But I think for the most part, I'm like you, Jonesy. I like I like to let it play out a bit, but I also understand the importance of always ready to be, make moves. Be flexible, flexible enough where you can make a move right away and, and make a change right away. And you, and I don't think you also let what other teams are doing impact what you're trying to do internally as an organization. I think it's very hard to do that, and I think it's dangerous to try to do that because you, you just never know the scenario. and You just never know the true situation. But I'm like you, Jones. I like the long game, and I like to see what we have. But for the most part, people do have to step up. Players have to continue to get better. You look at someone like a Scotty Barnes, who's in his second year, and I'm sure there are higher expectations. But you don't give up on a player like that. That could be a special. That's a special player with special potential, and he's somebody I think if he was playing a little better this year, more consistent basketball, this Raptors team would be a be a, be a little better as well. So I think that's there's a couple things to go involved with that. That's involved with that.
0: Al, I'm going to ask you. I'm putting you on the spot here. If you don't have an answer, that's fine because because you you didn't know I was coming with this one. Do you have any memory, heck, even if it was your collegiate days or even your high school days, do you have any professional memories, Raptor memories, memories as a fan, anything at all that stands out about Christmas Day games or anything in and around Christmas?
3: Oh, man. I I definitely – Remember playing on Christmas Day. I remember playing New York on Christmas Day. I can't I was, remember the game. I was hoping
0: you weren't going to say that.
3: <laughs> Wasn't that you just was a real beatdown? <laughs> Did we get beat down? I can't remember, but I just remember. I remember my family coming up, and I think there was a loss,
1: Eric. I don't know if it was a beatdown. I don't think Ooh, it was I a beatdown.
3: Really? I, well, okay, Did it okay.
1: get away early?
0: Uh, yeah, but let's. say hey, it's the holiday season. Yeah, it was a real tight game. Yeah. <laughs>
3: But, but you know, when, when, you, when you talk about the memories, I just remember my family coming up, and I remember like them spending the night over overnight in New York and spending that time. You know, a lot of people like to go to New York during the holiday seasons and all that stuff because of the lights and everything. But I do remember that. I don't remember. I don't remember what happened in that game. I think Stephon Marbury might have killed us or killed me or whatever, but I can't remember. But I do remember playing on Christmas Day.
0: All right, Al. we appreciate it, man. Listen, all the best the for the holiday eight, season. Uh listen, I'm trying to be was, nice, man. I'm down. spreading I'm spreading some Christmas cheer here, man. <laughs>
3: hey, man. That was that was thirty-six years ago, man. Um
0: listen, you were <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> listen. The end put it this way. The end score was not a beatdown because you guys lost by only eight, but you got buried early in the game by fifteen. And I don't believe you even had a lead at any point. You were down thirty to fifteen at the end of one, and even though uh, you won the second quarter, you won the third quarter, you tied the fourth quarter, because you dug
3: that early hole. That was hold it. Hold on, a. hold on, hold on, hold on, A. You're not going to sit there and say we had we were down fifteen and we won every quarter after that and call that a beat down. And we only lost by eight.
0: Tell you never him had, him had a lead, dude.
3: You never had a I lead. Mean, I mean, you, were, you were down I mean, and you I never think, took a lead. I've seen teams never have a lead and lost by two. That's not a beat down.
1: Oh, holiday lost, cheer. Don't by, you love we it? We lost
3: by eight. We lost by eight. And and we won three out of four quarters. We just had a bad first quarter, brother.
1: That, that's Sounds what familiar. I remember. Sounds I, 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 yeah, I, you, I remember Now you want, you want to bring score. Christmas
3: cheer. Now you're nothing, you're nothing but the Grinch. Get a Grinch. He is. He
1: is. Hey, listen. He is. I'm, I'm, I'm reaching into
0: my – I'm reaching into my big bag of toys here, and I'm seeing that Alvin Williams with the second-leading scorer for the Raptors with 18 points. Moe Pete had 22, and it was Allen Houston with a game-high 34, and Mark Jackson was one rebound shy of going for a triple-double. So there you go. That was December 25th, 2001.
3: Oh, wow. So there you go. Yeah, 36 years ago. All right. Beatdown. That wasn't a beatdown. Hey, in the Toronto Raptors history, I've been part of some beatdowns, some true beatdowns.
1: Hey, I have been here since day one, and I've watched some true beatdowns. Like whatever's in the whatever's in the media guide, whatever's in the media guide about about beatdowns, I've watched it. So I hear you, Al.
3: Yeah, I've been right right there with you,
0: man. Cheese and crackers. All right, my, here, here's my Christmas gift to both you then and to the audience. This doesn't happen very often. I was wrong. There you go. I was it's wrong. It's okay. We,
1: we got the tape rolling. We got it. We got the tape rolling.
0: <laughs> all right, Al. Have a good holiday, man. All right, Al. Happy, happy New right. Year, man.
3: See you guys soon.
0: There is Alvin Williams, Raptors radio analyst, one of the all-time fan favorites in Raptor history as well. And Jonesy, we're going to close the show with the – festive season as well. I know not everybody listening celebrates Christmas, but it is the holiday season. And for those of you that do indeed celebrate Christmas, I want to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back in time a little bit here to the year 2012, Christmas of 2012, where we together put together a little recreation, a reenactment of the famous story, poem, song, T'was the night before Christmas. And you are going to hear in this, Jonesy. Check out these names, Blast from the Past. We're going back a decade here, folks. The 10-year anniversary of T'was the Night Before Christmas. And it features... Jack Armstrong, Leo Routins, Matt Devlin, Micah Norai, former Raptors assistant coach, Aaron Gray, John Lucas, Jose Calderon, Michael Petrus, also... Jamal McGlure, yours truly, Paul Jones, Raptors PA voice, Herbie Kuhn, another Raptor assistant coach from the past, John Townsend, and also media relations guru, who now works for the NBA head office, Jim LaBombard. So again, as we close out Smith & Jones and we remind you again to subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, or otherwise, download, subscribe, rate, and review, we end the show with this compilation, this recreation of "'Twas the Night Before Christmas," from 2012. "'Twas the night before
2: Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn, there arose such a clatter. I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window, I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature
3: sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his courses they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now, dasher and dancer, now prancer and vixen, on Comet, on cupid, on donna, on blitzing, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry right leaves
1: that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop, the courser they flew, with a sleigh full of toys and St. Nicholas too.
3: And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney, St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head
1: to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back and he looked like a peddler, just opening his pack.
2: His eyes how they twinkled, his dimples how merry, his cheeks were
0: like roses, his nose like a cherry, his droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly.
3: He was chubby and plump, a white jolly hard, health and alive. <laughs> when I saw him, in spite of myself, a wink on his eye and twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread.
0: He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim as he drove out of sight, Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night.